Have you ever tried to travel while using a wheelchair? Does the thought of trying to get around while on vacation cause you anxiety? Well, today we have a special guest on our podcast, Kristen Secor, an adventurous traveler who has explored the world in a wheelchair and while on a ventilator. Kristen's journey with muscular dystrophy has not blunted her thirst for travel, and she has discovered some amazing tips and tricks for traveling with a disability. From visiting the national parks to camping in an RV to traveling around the world, Kristen has seen it all, and today she'll be sharing her insights and experiences with us. So grab your travel notebook and get ready to plan your next trip after hearing Kristen's story. So welcome back to Water Prairies. We appreciate you joining us today. I have a special guest with me. Her name is Kristen Secor. Kristen is a wheelchair travel blogger and um, the name of her blog is worldonwheelsblog.com and she has some fantastic photos and articles about the travels that she's done and some tips for things. So um, make sure that, that you check that out. But Krista, I'm going to give you a chance to tell us a little bit more about yourself, but welcome to Water Prairie. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so so tell me tell me a little bit more about yourself. Just, just being a blogger isn't half of who you are. So. Yes. Um, so yeah, I was born with a rare form of muscular dystrophy. Um, so rare that it affects like one in a million people. Um, wow. There's not even an official name for it. Um, they just have like a description of it. Um, so... I have always had difficulties. It was something I was born with, um, So, and it's slowly progressive. So I was more able-bodied when I was younger than I am now. Um, currently, I can, I do still have a little mobility. I can walk with assistance. I usually use a cane and then something else for balance um, because my muscular dystrophy affects my breathing. Um, so I am on a ventilator full-time. Um, it also affects my balance, my endurance, my strength, and mo- my mobility. So um, the mobility and the strength and the balance are the things that progressively get worse you know, a little bit over time as you age naturally. Um, and yeah, the doctors really don't know a lot about it. Uh, they know some general things, so it's kind of been a big question mark most of my life. But despite that, I have, uh, I try to live my life to the fullest because of that. I um, became a mental health counselor, and I did that job for 11 years. I absolutely loved it. Um, and then when my health worsened, I um, had pneumonia, was hospitalized, and was not able to return to that job. Um, so I was looking for what else can I do. I mean, I took some time to first stabilize my health and really take care of myself but I really after a time I was like I I need some purpose I need something to feel good about so I looked at how can I help others because that's naturally what comes to me but also what can I do that's different than what I did before so I combined my love of travel with my wanting to help others and created my wheelchair accessible travel blog. Well, I'm excited about our conversation today because I have a lot, a lot of questions about travel, but um, but I also want to find out a little bit more about, about you too. But before we do that, all of my guests this season, I've been asking them to play a little game with me called Two Truths and a Lie. And um, so Kristen, can you share with us three facts or pseudo facts about yourself for us to guess which one is the lie? Okay. Um, the first one is I've been to four continents. The second one is I've been to 30 countries. And the last one is I love animals. 
All right. So if you're listening, um, go or watching on, on YouTube, if you're on YouTube in the comments, leave your guests, or you can go to Instagram or Twitter and leave your guests on the post that we'll put there. And a week after we post this, then we'll come back and we'll add the answer so you can check to see if you have it right or not. So we'll see um, if anyone gets it. And if you've been trying to guess on the others, uh, make a note on how many that you've guessed correctly so far. I'm curious to see how many you're starting to guess on this. So Kristen, you mentioned, uh, you gave us some details about muscular dystrophy already, but I still have a lot of questions. Can you tell me what muscular dystrophy is? So muscular dystrophy is something that affects the proteins in your body, and it basically is a muscle-wasting disease. So you start off at a certain level, and then it progresses over time. So depending on the type, there are several different types of muscular dystrophy. They affect different muscle groups. They have different prognoses. Unfortunately, people that have like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy have a shortened lifespan because it affects their heart muscles and things like that that can be catastrophic. But not all types of muscular dystrophy have that same prognosis. So you could live a very full life, but just have complications increase as your life continues and maybe need certain adaptive equipment, such as wheelchairs or other aids to help you with your normal daily activities. So, so from person to person, it doesn't necessarily affect the same muscle groups? No. So, for example, there's... Um, a type called limp girdle muscular dystrophy, and that affects more of like your core muscles um, and like your ability to, um, what's the word I'm looking for, to kind of coordinate. Um, they may affect reflexes, things like that. Um, some muscular dystrophies do affect the respiratory muscles like mine, and not all of them do. Some of them affect heart muscles or vision. Some types of muscular dystrophy also have um, cognitive deficits associated with it, but certainly not all of them. And even with someone with the same diagnosis, you're going to have some general similarities, but you can vary from person to person even with that same diagnosis. I have mul multiple sclerosis, and I know that that can affect the muscles in different ways, sometimes making them more rigid, sometimes making them more of a a spastic type response. Does it work the same way with muscular dystrophy? Yeah, similar. So in muscular dystrophy, a lot of the times the muscles will contract and you can't release them. So like regular people, I don't know if regular is the word, but people without that diagnosis <laughs> um, really can do stretches, you know, to release the tightness in their muscles. And with muscular right. dystrophy, that, that, that may make an impact but it's not going to fix it and so some people have a lot of pain because those muscles get so tight and contracted right. um so that can be one of the symptoms but that doesn't necessarily happen across all forms of it so again okay. it can vary with the severity and how much pain or how badly your muscles contract and movement um, it affects range of motion too, so like some people aren't able to lift their arms over their head or, you okay. know, that type of thing, which can affect how you perform your daily living um, activities and things like that. Right. Yeah, I could see if you're, especially if the muscle isn't stretching like it should, 
then it would restrict it, all the trichodel motions that they go along with that too. Yeah. And, and interesting. So is it, does it have a genetic component to it or do they know yes. that? So it does. yes, okay. it is genetic. And depending on the type you have, it can be a dominant gene or a recessive gene. Oh. Um, so that's, that changes your chances of inheriting it. Um, so, right. for example, if it's a dominant gene, only one of your parents need to have that gene to pass it down to you. Mm -hmm. And you can maybe have a less severe form if you only have one of the genes versus two, but you'll still be affected in some way if it's recessive. Both parents need to have that gene to pass it down to you um, in order to get it. So you might be a carrier of it without actually having it. Right. Okay. So, which means it could go for generations and not... Yes not show up okay yeah and it's in my family we're very familiar with with the the auto recessive mm -hmm. genetics for the, for things <laughs> so surprises do do show up at times yes and um so you said that that you've had it since since birth is it is, I'm, I'm assuming since it's genetic that it's always going to be that case where it's yes. since birth yes um and so they knew actually before i was born because I never turned, you know, in the proper birthing or whatever. I was a breach. Um, so, and they kind of knew something just wasn't right, but they weren't sure what it was. So I was a plant C-section um, just to kind of prevent any um, concerns, any issues, problems with delivery, things like that. Um, and really, they didn't know much about muscular dystrophy. Even when I was born in the early 80s, so, you know, there's obviously been a lot of technology advancements since then. Um, so actually my pediatrician at the time, I wasn't meeting the developmental mi milestones, right? So I couldn't hold up my head. I couldn't roll over. I was, you know, delayed in walking. I actually walked before I crawled because it took more muscles to crawl than it did for me to walk. So the pediatrician knew something wasn't quite right. And so they referred me. He luckily knew, yeah a specialist in neuromuscular diseases and referred me to that doctor. So I was able to get some kind of intervention early on, fairly early on. Um, my speech was delayed. Like I really, it's not that I couldn't talk. It's because my facial muscles were so weak that when I tried to talk, it didn't sound like anything, right? I couldn't really pronounce the words. So I had to go through a lot of speech therapy in preschool. I had to go through a lot of physical therapy, occupational therapy, because my coordination skills were very delayed. Um, when I was little, I had basically um, no reflexes at all. So you know how kids can be clumsy, right? And they fall all the time. Well, I would fall and I couldn't catch myself. So I was constantly hitting my head. I had like a little plastic helmet I wore. You know, I, we called it my crash helmet. And it was like play army it was like a play army helmet but it helped protect my head so that i wouldn't you know get a concussion or things like that right right wow so if the speech um the muscle tone for the speech was was delayed did you have feeding problems as a child surprisingly no i could swallow um like when i was really young it was easier for me to be fed by a bottle because you didn't have to suck as hard so as an infant, it was more the sucking muscles versus the swallowing muscles, you know, because of the facial stuff. Um, but I was, you know, fed. I 
was able to get enough nutrition. And it was just, how do I coordinate my muscles, strengthen my facial muscles so that I can articulate and have people understand me. I was actually in a special preschool um, for people with disabilities. Um, So everyone in my class um, had a wide range of what their quote-unquote disabilities were. We had someone that was deaf, right? So the whole class learned sign language to be able to communicate with our fellow student. And I tried learning that. I tried doing that at home. Like, this is great. No one can understand me when I talk. I'm just right, right. sign language. And my parents would be like, uh, yeah, we don't understand that. You got to use your words. <laughs> it, takes, it takes both parties to understand the signs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I didn't get that as a kid because everyone all day long knew what I was saying, you know, so. Right, right. Well, and, and I, was, I was wondering about that, if sign language would have worked for you. As, as a child until, until, I mean, as you're trying to develop those muscles and, and get the speech worked out, sign would make sense to have yeah. adapted that. It's actually a really helpful tool. And it's, you know, a way for families, like you said, to really kind of help with language development. And kids learn language so fast that it's really easy for them to pick up and it can save a lot of frustration. And it's just helpful to make the world more inclusive too. If you know just a little bit of sign language that when you do encounter someone with a hearing deficit, you know, to be able to communicate, they're thrilled because they're so used to people not knowing any. So even if you just know hi, you know, like that for them is like, oh, you're making an effort, you know, thank you. Right, right. The, um, so for you with the, I'm thinking with the diagnosis. So they knew there was something going on in utero for you. Um, and then, so then, you were born with C-section, they were still tr- figuring it out? Or like, how was the diagnosis actually made? Were they doing, was it like, or do you know today? Because I'm thinking so much has changed since then even. Do, yep. have, have you kept up with how that how, how that works today? So there's still, um, I actually didn't get an official diagnosis until I was in my late 20s, early 30s. Um, wow. So, but they tried diagnosing me when I was more like nine years old. So one of the ways they'll diagnose you is doing a muscle biopsy. So they actually take a small piece of muscle from usually like your upper thigh area. Um, and usually you're sedated, so you're not, you know, you don't feel it, right. that kind of thing. Um, and then they run that muscle and they compare that, the fibers of the muscle and all that with other forms of muscular dystrophy to try to make a diagnosis. Now, because of the technology, they also have genetic testing they can do. And that's actually how I finally got my diagnosis because, you know, born in the early 80s, they certainly did not have that technology. They were, you know, were doing muscle biopsies. And when they did mine, they were like, okay, you most closely fit this, but this doesn't make sense because that form only happens in males and, you know, all of that. So they really couldn't say, okay, this is what you have and this is what it means. So when I was older, I was going to a um, muscular dystrophy clinic. So they have certain clinics around the country that are neuromuscular clinics, but that are um, certified in 
The treatment of muscular dystrophies, they're usually under the umbrella of the MDA, the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Um, and luckily, I live in New York, so Rochester has a very good clinic. Um, that's the one I go to. Um, and that's where they did the genetic testing, and they found out that I have a very rare form. So so is it the same form that they thought that it was when you were younger? No, they didn't even so, know about so it was form. wrong. When I was younger, yeah. So, I mean, I think just their discovery of different types of forms has increased over the years as well as they've, you know, done um, better case studies, more communication. I mean, the Internet is a beautiful thing because it helps doctors communicate and, you know, get share information of, oh, okay, my patient is presenting as this, but they're not matching this diagnosis, you know, and all that kind of stuff. When I was in elementary school, I was still getting um, occupational and physical therapy, but my speech had progressed far enough that I no longer needed speech therapy. Um, so I was getting those services in elementary school, but then basically after elementary school, I had progressed enough I didn't need those anymore. And it was basically for dexterity, like writing was difficult for me because of those fine motor skills and stuff. I really had to practice that and hone those to be able to write legibly, you know, and keep up with the other kids. It's not that I didn't know how. It's just that that dexterity needed to be improved. Did you, did they introduce keyboarding to you when you were younger? Our elementary school started that in fourth and fifth grade. So yes, we, you know, had like basic computer classes to learn about what a computer was and that kind of stuff. Um, and then the, the, um, you had that later on in like high school if you chose to take that for like official typing and stuff like that. Um, right. We had like an introduction in elementary school. Did you did you find that typing was easier than writing? I mean, at that point, because it was fourth and fifth grade, my dexterity had gotten improved enough that I had um, I could write without any issues. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, everyone likes a keyboard because they were teaching us games, you know, to oh, um, like, building <laughs> games like you know, the Oregon Trail and, you know, stuff like right. that. You had to plan and think or whatever. So, you know, it was fun. So let's let's switch gears. Um, so your blog, I want to talk, I want to learn more about what you're learning here because I, there's just so much that I want you to share with us on this. Um, so World on Wheels blog. Um how did you get start started traveling? So I started, we always took um, family vacations when I was younger. So I always enjoyed seeing places, you know, around the U.S. and around New York State where I grew up. Um, but I took my first international trip after I had graduated from graduate school. So I had met a friend. Um, she had studied abroad in college. And she, we both graduated just around a couple months apart from each other and so she called me up and she said I got plane tickets for my graduation present let's go to England and I said okay let's go so I put a rush order on a passport I didn't even have a passport at that point I put a rush order to get my passport got it like two weeks before my trip I spent two weeks traveling um, England and Scotland taking the train around and I was hooked. I absolutely loved, you know, seeing all the old buildings and learning about a, you know, similar but new culture that was a little bit different than my own and, you know, just getting to experience a summer totally new, totally foreign. England was a nice introduction because there wasn't a language barrier 
I mean, there were accents and stuff, but I, it's not like I had to learn a whole new language to be able to communicate. Um, so it was really a nice introduction. And I got back from that trip and I was like, okay, now I want to see the world. Like, let's go. Right. I want to see everywhere. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the, um, well, see, I, I know the feeling, but I haven't been able to travel as much as you. So, so you, you've, you've found a way to make, to make this work. Um, so you went with your girlfriend for the first, the first trip. Yes. Have you always traveled with someone or do you travel on your own? I always travel with someone. So I, when I went to England, I was much more able-bodied. I wasn't even using a cane at that point. I was, you know, so I was walking. I would get tired with prolonged walking, but I could okay. walk without any hugely major issues. Steps have always been a problem for me. So stairs um, were, would slow me down, but I could do them. Um, so I did travel with her. I've only done one solo trip, um, and that was, again, early on, and that was within the United States. And I was, you know, starting to see more effects on my muscular dystrophy. So I was looking at, okay, how can I make this easier on myself? Um, so I actually went to um, Savannah, Georgia, because they have free public transportation that's accessible. So, so steps were becoming harder. So their buses actually kneel down, and then there's a ramp that pulls out, so you can walk right up a ramp without having to do steps. Um, so it's a really cool um, uh, system. It goes all around the historic downtown. It was really easy to navigate. Um, so that was the only trip I've done solo. And unfortunately, since my disease has progressed, I need assistance. I mean, I can't lift anything more than like two pounds. So, you know, I need help with luggage, I need help with my ventilator and my other equipment, and, like, just from getting from a seated position to a standing position, I can't do on my own, so there's, um, you know, stuff like that that I need assistance with. So usually I travel either with my family or with friends. Okay. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking, too, you know, most of our listeners are families, so, um, so they're they're going to be as a group traveling anyway. So a lot of what you're sharing will be things that they'll be able to to apply. Um, so looking at your blog site, you have a lot listed on there for the national parks. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because most of our listeners are in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So there's probably a national park within within a, a distance that they may be able to travel to. And um, and I know that they have the disability access pass. Can you tell us about about that? And I know you're not representing the national parks, but but from your experience, what what do you know about that? And what can you tell our families that are listening who may not be familiar with what it is? Sure. So the Access Pass is a wonderful resource. Um, anyone who is a U.S. resident that has a permanent disability can apply for one and get one. They are free of charge when you get them in person, or if you want to get one by mail, there's a, like a $10 processing fee. So really affordable and it's good. Um, it's a lifetime pass, so it's not something that needs to be renewed or anything like that. And so what it does is it allows free entry into any national park or national site. So national historic sites, national lake shores, things like that, um, national landmarks. It's not only for the person with a disability, but anyone in the vehicle with them. So if you're traveling with your family, 
you know, if it's your child that's disabled or the parent that's disabled, you can get this pass and it's good for anyone in that vehicle with you. Um, so, and that saves a lot of money because national park entries fees can be, um, they average around 30 to $35 per park. And usually they're good for like a set amount of days, like two to three days. But still, you, you, especially if you are doing a road trip and you plan to hit four national parks in a trip, that cost adds up quickly. So having that access pass is fantastic. Um, it can really help make traveling a little more affordable when you go to our national parks. And not only does it give you free admission, but it can give you discounts on other things too, like tours, if there's an accessible tour within the national park you can get a discount on that tour if you're camping within a national park you can get discounts on campgrounds and stuff like that um so it's a really great pass to have and to use wow do you have you used the camping part of it in the parks yes so usually when i go to national parks i travel with my parents um i live with my parents because of my disability um so even though i'm an adult um, I still have that, you know, medical support. Um, so we usually take a family vacation every year together. Um, we have an RV that's been adapted because camping when you're disabled is possible. Um, that's one of the posts I have on my website is how to do that. Um, and what we have in our RV is actually it's a chair and a motorized lift. So I transfer from my wheelchair to this chair, there's a remote that lifts the chair up on this um, on this bar, and then it swings in over the steps. So that allows me to not have to use the steps, which on RVs are very steep and very narrow, so they can be very troublesome. There's also not really good railing positions because of the way RVs are laid out. So this has really been a lifesaver because once I'm in. The RV, I can walk around with my limited mobility. There's enough stuff to hold on to to navigate. But even if you don't have mobility, there are RVs that can be fully adapted so that there's a wheelchair lift, that there's tie downs, you know, that there's access accessible bathrooms and things like that. So there are possibilities out there if your family's interested in camping. Unfortunately, are renting an adapted RV really isn't possible at this point in time. Um, so you could either buy a used one and have it adapted or buy a new, new ones are going to be the most expensive, unfortunately. But if that's the main way you travel, it may be an investment that's worthwhile over the long, long run. But usually national parks, if you're not camping, have lodges within them that usually have accessible rooms that you can do. Um, so like uh, Yellowstone National Park has um, the Old Faithful Inn, which is, you know, their big popular thing that overlooks the Old Faithful Geyser. They have adapted rooms with roll-in showers and things like that that can be really helpful um, if you don't want to invest into a camper. I hadn't realized that any of the parks had the the housing. I, I, knew that, I knew a lot of them had the campgrounds, but I didn't know they had the housing too. So those are some, some good good pointers there as far as making it more affordable too for a family to be able to, to go. Um, I do want to take a moment though for our families that are listening with young children. Um, I would encourage you to go ahead and get a disability access pass 
and just keep that safe for your child because that's good for their entire life. Yeah, and national parks are usually pretty good with accessibility too. So it's usually a fairly easy place to visit if you have a disability. Um, they really try to make it inclusive. Um, so I forgot to mention all you need to do to apply for the pass is get a note from your doctor. It doesn't need to say what your disability is, just that you have a permanent disability. Um, and then have proof that you're a U.S. resident, and that's all you need. Right, right. And so, and the earlier you do that, the better, because then it's just, it's done. You don't have to mess with the paperwork the next time. Yeah. The, um, and we did ours in person as well. So, um, but I'm sure if you go to the National Parks website, you can see how to, if you need to do it by mail, how how to set that up too. Um, in fact, I'll I'll put in the show notes, We'll we'll find the link for that and put that in the show notes so that if you're, if you're interested in that, you'll be able to find it there. Um, so that's our national parks. So the part that I'm really curious about is your international travel. So what are, now in our um, two truths and a lie game, you gave us a number of countries. So we're not going to say how many countries you've traveled to just so that they can still decide whether that was true or not. <laughs> but um, But what are some of the countries that you've traveled to? Ah. So I've been to Italy, which was one of my favorites. I've been to Iceland. I've been to um, England, Scotland. I've been to Argentina, uh, Chile, Antarctica, um, Canada. Um, so various, mostly Europe travel for international travel, but I have gone to um, some countries in South America and four different continents. So I've, I've made it around. Wow. The, um, so you, you said Italy was your favorite? One of my favorites. So I One try to favorites. find something special about each trip and each trip has something unique. To it, but Italy is a country that I've always wanted to go to ever since I was little. It was just something I felt drawn to. I always joked with my family, I should have been born Italian. I'm not, but I should have been. <laughs> um, so it was really, you know, something I really wanted to do. And so I decided, you know what, life's short. Um, so I, I talked to my best friend. I'm like, hey, let's go to Italy. She said, okay, let's go. So, um, <laughs> We went, we spent two weeks in Italy. We went to Rome, Florence, and Venice and had a blast. Um, so I had more mobility then, but even as a wheelchair user, Italy is possible. Um, every country's going to have their obstacles. Um, for example, cobblestones. That was probably one oh, of the biggest yeah. ones in Italy. Um, but it was still wonderful. We went to the Colosseum. Which, by the way, has an elevator, so, you know, people with mobility issues. Yeah, yeah, the Coliseum has an elevator, um, so that's really, really cool, makes it really accessible. Um, went to the Vatican, you know, went to lots of different museums and different things. We had such a fantastic trip. Um, I actually cried on my way home because it lived up to all of my expectations, oh. and I just didn't want to leave. Um, so actually, I went back, I think it was two years later, I went back again with some other friends. They're like, well, we want to go. You know, you've been. Take us. So I was like, okay, let's go. Sure. <laughs> Tw twisting your, 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 your arm a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I went with some, 
some co-workers at the time. They knew Italy was my dream trip, and my co-worker approached me. She said, my husband doesn't like to travel. I've always wanted to go to Greece. You know, will you go with me? Help me plan it. I said, sure. So we actually did a cruise um, in the Mediterranean, and it stopped in Italy as well. So I took him to Italy, and then after the cruise, we stayed in Italy to go to Florence and did a hot air balloon ride over Tuscany. Oh, and, wow. you know, just really, really memorable, wonderful trip. So they had a blast. Um, it was just, you know, a way even back then I was helping people travel and fulfill their dreams to dream destinations. So Right. Wow. So you, so you mentioned doing the cruise. Is that, are cruise lines accessible? Yeah, most of the major cruise lines are. So the major cruise lines like Princess Helen America, Celebrity, Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, all of them have... Um, accessible cabins on board. Most of them also have a dedicated accessibility department so you can coordinate with them prior to your cruise to know uh, what your needs are. Um, you can talk to them about like accessibility at certain ports because so there are some ports that are closer than others. You know, the city to the port. Um, sometimes the cruise lines can uh, offer wheelchair accessible excursions, but not always, especially internationally, because in Europe doesn't have the same ADA laws that we do in the U.S. It's a country by country basis and not all of them have it. Um, so you might have to do private excursions, but there are companies available in Europe, especially that will do wheelchair accessible excursions or help out arranging that. And so, yeah, cruising is one of the more accessible ways to see countries where you're unsure how accessible it may be, or if you just want a taste of a lot of different countries, cruising is a great option for that as well. Have have many of your trips been through cruising or have you done more just destination trips? I do both. Um, so I've done a fair amount of cruises, I think. Let me count. I've done five cruises so far. I've um, another one planned for later this year. Um, but I've also done land trips. Like when I was in Iceland, that was not a cruise. That was a land trip. When I went to Ireland, that was a land trip. There are some countries that are just better seen with a land trip versus a cruise trip. So I, I try to balance the two. When you're in like Italy or in, in one of the other countries, I'm assuming that you're using cabs a lot for getting around. Or do you use more, like like if you're going into some of those, because I'm thinking when I've traveled, there's not always a bus network that you can use. Sometimes you have to get in either the train or or the cabs. Do you have any trouble with getting your wheelchair in and out? Um, so it depends on the location. Like um, London has really good accessible cabs. I mean, all of their black cabs are wheelchair accessible. They have a fold-out ram. So... London is a really good um, first starter destination if you're wanting to travel to Europe but you're unsure about accessibility. Um, that can be a great intro to that because they have pretty good accessibility laws and do make a really good effort. Um, but not all countries have accessible cabs. So unless you can transfer from your wheelchair to like a regular seat, that may not be an option. Um, trains in Europe can be accessible. Uh, the trains in Italy are accessible, but you need to plan ahead. You need to let them know in advance because there's special equipment 
that they use and special seating they have to reserve okay. for you. So you just have to plan in advance and let them know. And when you do that, are you working through a travel agent or are you working directly with, like in country with the train company? So I usually plan most of my trips myself. Um, there's a couple times where I'll use an, an agent if I'm if there's not a lot of information on the accessibility within the country, um, just because I'd prefer to have someone that knows the area and knows what's available. Right. Um, but I usually do most of my travel myself. That's one of the things I enjoy is planning travel and um, doing all the research and stuff like that. So if there is information on how to contact the company directly, I will. Um, and I would say um, no matter what kind of accessible service you're looking for, it's always good to contact the company directly. So whether it's a hotel, um, a lot of hotels in Europe will say, I have an accessible room, but they don't post pictures. And so what you need to be um, aware of is that the definition of accessibility can vary by country. You know, with what they perceive accessibility to be um, and how they handle that. Um, so it's always good to contact the hotel before you book to ask for pictures to make sure that that room's really going to meet your needs. Um, and then I would say after you book, call to confirm, yes, you assigned me a mobility accessible room because I've had instances where I will book an accessible room, I show up, and they give me a hearing accessible room, not a mobility oh. accessible room, because they think it's the same. They just say, oh, it's accessible. Well, no, there's two different types of accessibility. Um, and I can't even fit in the bathroom because the door's not wide enough for my wheelchair. Right. So call to confirm oh, and then always confirm again like a week before your trip because things can go wrong and people in the travel industry don't always understand what things mean to be accessible, or even if they do, your needs could vary from someone else's needs. So it's always right. good to check for your specific needs. Right. Interesting. Um, what about your airport travel? Do you, because with the equipment that you're traveling with, you've got security checks that you have to go through. Um, so how do you, how do you navigate that? So airports, um, what I would, what I always do is you will have the option at a lot of airports, to, if you're traveling in a wheelchair, to check your wheelchair with the rest of your luggage at the ticket booth and then use one of their wheelchairs, which never, ever, ever do. Because okay. if it's checked with your luggage, it's more, your wheelchair is more likely to get damaged. They'll just throw oh. it around with all the other baggage on the conveyor belts and things like that. So what you want to do is you want to gate check your wheelchair. Um, so when you go through like TSA, they have a special line for wheelchair users that usually you can skip the line to get you know, go through security. Um, and then if you can stand and go through the metal detector scanner, you can. If not, what they'll do is they'll take you aside and they'll do a pat down. So they'll have an agent of the same gender that you are and they will pat you down to make sure that you don't have anything you're not supposed to have on you. They'll also swab your wheelchair and any other equipment that you have with you to make sure that it doesn't have explosive residue on it. And then you're free to go to the gate. And what you'll do is you'll let the airline know in advance that you'll be traveling with a wheelchair that you'll need assistance because at the gate, they'll give you a tag for your wheelchair so that 
It will be waiting for you at your next stop. It'll be brought to the airplane door. And to get on the plane, they use something called an aisle wheelchair. The aisles on an airplane are very narrow, so a traditional wheelchair will not fit down them. So this aisle wheelchair is teeny tiny. I mean, I'm not not a large person, and I barely fit on it. So for people that are larger in size, it may not be the most comfortable ride, but luckily it's very short. You know, when you talk to the airline, you make sure to let them know if you have a seat preference. You know, if it's the first row, so you have more leg room, or it's easier to transfer if you need an aisle chair versus a window seat, you know, that kind of thing. And that way they can arrange that, they can assign you a seat that will fit your needs. And then um, staff will help you transfer into the aisle wheelchair, they'll wheel you down to your seat, and then they'll help you transfer to your seat. The major problem I found on airline travel are restrooms. Um, So the bigger wide-body aircraft are supposedly have accessible restrooms. I use quotes on that because it's not like the accessible restrooms you'll find in a restaurant or in the airport. They're still kind of like closet size, so you may or may not be able to easily transfer in one of those restrooms. So a lot of people dehydrate themselves or wear diapers, like adult diapers, you know, to prevent any issues. I know for men, sometimes women will use a catheter and a blanket, you know, to kind of be able to relieve themselves on a longer flight. Um, So that would probably be one of the biggest obstacles, in addition with a chance of your wheelchair getting damaged. Unfortunately, airlines do damage wheelchairs, um, and if that happens, you definitely need to report it and have them take steps to fix it, which unfortunately can take a long time for them to do. So if you're using um, a powered wheelchair, remove anything you can that's um, likely to be damaged, like the joystick. If the joystick comes off, take that off and bring it in the cabin with you. Or if it can't be removed, wrap it in um, bubble wrap and duct tape to protect it. Um, You know, things like that. So whatever can be removed, headrest, seat cushions, take that on the airplane with you so it doesn't get damaged, and then um, whenever you can't, just try to protect it the best you can. And tell staff how to, you know, use your wheelchair so that they know and can um, hopefully reduce the risk of damage. Right. That's that's very, very good points because I hadn't thought about any of that um, with the edges of it and even ha- bringing the bubble wrap to to protect it. It's a great idea. Have you, have you gotten into an international country and had a damaged chair before? Thank goodness, no. Um, so I've had some minor wear and tear on like the arm, um, with the armrests and things like that, but nothing that has made it unusable, you know, unusable or anything like that. So I've not had wood, very luckily, very blessed, um, but that is something that can happen. So I don't mean to scare anyone from travel, um, but I'm just trying to be realistic of what the risks are and how you can help mitigate them. Well, and if you plan ahead with this too, then at least you know kind of how to plan. Because I'm thinking it, it could definitely dampen a trip if you if you've yeah. lost your mobility or have yeah. to use just a I don't even know what they're called. I always want to call it an, an ambulatory wheelchair. What, what, um, what, what is it? A manual, manual wheelchair, yeah. 
Right. So if you're having to use that on cobblestone streets, that's going to be tough on you and the person who's with you because you're going to need help with that too. Um, May not be a very smooth ride if that's the case, (laughs) but, uh, but knowing that hope, hope, hopefully those, those tips are going to keep the next person from having a problem with it because they've been able to secure things and, and keep it safe. Now you travel with someone. um, So at least one other person is with you. Um, as you're doing a transfer, of course, you're, you're able to stand as well, but I was thinking as you're doing the transfer, the one that makes the most sense is to do an aisle seat, but then you have other people sitting beyond you. So how do you deal with that? Are you having to get up and down to let them in and out? So I actually can't get up and down because of the, the way the airline seats are, they're too close together. So Unfortunately, I mean, someone has to climb over me. So for a long haul flight, like to Europe, I will request a window seat so that it helps prevent that issue. And if you just, so yes, I can pivot and I can wait there, but that's not always easy in the close proximity of an aircraft. So oftentimes I will allow staff to assist me, to lift me. Um, And so there's a couple ways you can do that. Um, the first one is you can cross your arms in front of your body and the lift underneath your arms and underneath your legs and lift you manually. Or if you prefer, and especially if you have sensitive areas, you can actually use one of your transfer slings and take that with you and have that underneath you. And that way all they have to do is lift the sling with you in it. And that way they're not actually physically touching you they're touching the sling and that can be a little bit of a smoother process too that's what i was wondering because if you're transferring to the first seat you still have to get over two more to get to the window yeah. seat for for the most part they're usually three maybe two yeah. um but um but yeah but it does make sense and especially if you're not if you're not going to be trying to use the restroom while you're on the plane then the window seat would make more sense right but yeah, and, and I don't know of anyone who wants to use the restroom in an airplane <laughs> if, they, if they can avoid it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even for people that are not disabled, those airline restrooms are like closets. They're teeny tiny. Oh, they are. They're, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it isn't. It, it isn't what you think of as clean whenever you think yeah. of going in there. So, you know, it, 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 it is a public place after all. Do you have any other tips and tricks for that, that, that you've learned that you want to pass on for families who might be thinking about taking on some, some international travel? I would say just plan ahead. Planning ahead is key um, because accessible hotel rooms are limited. Um, so you want to get those before they book up. And then especially if you're traveling with a family, there's limited options for connecting rooms or other things that you may need because usually accessible rooms only sleep two people. So, um, so there's not, there are some places that will do a family room, but they're very rare and far and in between. I know there are places in England that actually have like cottages and like accessible homestays that you can do that are a lot easier for families traveling. Um, but that's not the norm across any other country that I'm aware of. Even in the U.S., like if you want to travel as a family with someone with a disability, it's very challenging to find a place that will accommodate everyone if you need to stay in the same room. Um, or even having connecting rooms can sometimes be a challenge. So planning ahead is definitely the key. And especially if you're cruising because those cabins are limited and they will pick up, book up 
quickly, especially on popular itineraries. I mean, I plan my travel at least a year in advance before that reason. So, uh, yes, planning ahead is definitely key. And that gives you time to figure out, like, how are you going to get around? What's transportation like? What attractions can you see that are going to be accessible? And, you know, find out what your budget is and kind of work within what you're able to do. Um, so even traveling, I would say a lot of my tips are the same for international and domestic travel is just plan ahead. Um, we talked about the about the national parks earlier. Lodging around those definitely books up really, really quickly. Um, when we went to Yellowstone last year, we booked over a year in advance um, for the for the campground that we stayed at. Um, because as soon as those bookings open up, they can sell out within an hour. So, like, your really popular national parks, I would say Yellowstone, Yosemite, you know, places like that, they're going to book up within minutes. So put that on your calendar when those um, become available to book, and if you can, get right online right when they open up so that you have the best choice. Do they usually open a year ahead of time, or is it more than that? Sometimes it's more. It can be 18 months. It can be a year. So each one is different. Um, so okay. when you're planning your trip, kind of keep that in mind. Look online to see when they book up. They'll tell you when they open up, um, and that way you can put it on your calendar. And sometimes they'll do it in batches. Um, like some uh, national parks now are requiring reservations because... They've had over-tourism, and they've become overcrowded, so they have timed entries and stuff like that. So you'll need to look at um, what the rules are for that. Sometimes if you're staying at lodging within the park, you may not need a timed entry reservation because you have booked lodging, but sometimes you still do for certain areas or certain activities. Okay. So you'll really want to research what the requirements are where you'll need reservations when those open up and be aware of that. Is that has that been since COVID that they're doing the time yeah. entries? Yeah. Okay. Um so it started with COVID just for social distancing and stuff, but then um a lot of them realized, hey, this is helping the national parks and the user experiences. So a lot of them have just continue that time entry system. I know Glacier National Park is one of them, and they actually have like three different reservations you need to get because of the roads. Like the scenic drives become so popular that they need to space it out and make sure that it's not overcrowded. So it's it can be a little tricky when planning a trip. Okay. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot about what you've done. Um, tell me a little bit more about your blog. Um, what you're doing there and what, what other projects you have going on. Yeah, so the blog, I try to, um, I try to keep posts coming um, as, you know, at least once a week or twice a month, you know, have new content. Um, the blog, the way you can navigate it. So I have an accessible um, travel resource page to help, you know, with, you know, um, just some in general information and resources that will be helpful when planning accessible travel. I have an accessible tour provider page. So if seemingly, if you know, all this talk about planning an accessible trip seems overwhelming, sometimes tour providers are the best way to go because they will take care of the accommodations, transportation, tours, all of that. And so I 
the on that page, I've only listed companies that I have personally used and have good experiences with so that I feel comfortable recommending them to you um, if you need to use them. I also have um, posts on destinations that I've been to that talk about what you can expect in terms of accessibility, some of the things you can do, how to get around, um, where to rent mobility equipment or you know equipment that may help. Um, so, for example, Hawaii, it's hard to fly with a bunch of mobility equipment other than your wheelchair. So if you need, like, a shower chair or if you need other specialized equipment, you may be able to rent it while you're there. And I, and I tell you where you can do some of those rentals or how you can rent an accessible vehicle at your destination, things like that. I can give you itineraries um, and, you know, just a wealth of information on the website. Something new that I'm doing, um, so having been a wheelchair traveler and knowing some of the challenges that come with that, um, I would say the two main challenges are planning and cost, um, because unfortunately accessible travel can cost twice as much as traditional travel, sometimes more. Um, so, unfortunately, that's a reality. Um, so, I do have some, uh, if you subscribe to my newsletter, I have some tips on how to save money on your next travel. But knowing that that's, um, that's an issue, one of the things I'm doing that I just launched, actually, is I'm starting to organize small group tours. Um, so, our first tour is a fully wheelchair-accessible South African safari. Wow. Yes. Um, so my hope is that traveling with a small group, it, um, I've done all the planning for you, so you don't have to worry about that. And then the cost is split up. So what might have been a private tour to make it accessible that could have been you know, tens of thousands of dollars is now at a much more reasonable per person price because we're doing it as a small group and we're sharing some of those costs. Right. That's a great idea. I like that. Well, and you've traveled to enough places that your expertise is going to help. Um, yeah. Maybe some that haven't tried to travel before will be more comfortable now. Yeah, that's the hope. I really want to help people travel to places they've always wanted to go. Um, I love doing that, helping people live out their dreams. I also love to inspire people to go to places that maybe they never thought were accessible. You know, when I tell people, hey, we're going on a South African safari, they're like, wait, that's wheelchair accessible? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it is. Come with me. So, Yeah. Yeah, this, this, this is exciting. So when are you planning on that trip to be? So that trip is taking place in September um, 2024. So I launched it far enough in advance so that people could plan, you know, budget accordingly. Um, I tried to keep costs as low as possible and make it as all-inclusive as possible. But I know that sometimes we need to plan around these things, especially if we're traveling as a family. So I wanted to give people time to prepare for that, to ask questions, to see if maybe this was a good fit for them. Um, and I'm also, you know, I want to plan more trips in the future. So even if the safari trip is not for you, make sure to sign up to the newsletter. Tell me where you want to go so that we can, you know, look about 
maybe doing another small group tour there in the future. We've talked about the blog. Where can listeners go to learn more about your work? So you can go to my website, worldonwheelsblog.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Um, When you sign up, you'll get weekly accessible travel tips. You'll also have your choice on um, freebies on either ways to save money or getting a trip planner where I kind of um, walk you through on how to plan a trip and um, a place to keep all the information in one place so it's easy to stay organized. Um, and you can also follow me on Facebook. I have a World on Wheels uh, blog page on Facebook that if you type that into the search, it'll come up. And, and that way you can follow me along with my travels, see what I'm up to, see what I'm doing, and maybe it'll inspire your next trip. Nice, nice. And um, speaking of which, where's next? Where are you heading on your next trip? Uh, so in June, I will be in Alaska and California. Um, uh, Alaska's on, on my, my, my list. <laughs> yes. I, so I was in Antarctica in January. Now it's Alaska. You know, kind of compare the two, the glaciers, the mountains, oh, yeah. all of that. Um, and then next year, um, I will be in Northern Ireland and Africa. Nice. Nice. Well, Kristen, thank you for joining me today and for sharing um, more about um, helping me to understand more about muscular dystrophy. And hopefully some of our parents that are listening will um, will have a better understanding. And um, those who have children that have been diagnosed will have a better idea of of what they're 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 looking at and what their child's future may be. But um, but also sharing with us about what you've learned about travel and just I'm hoping you've been able to inspire some of our listeners to, to, to take out um, their Atlas and and choose a location to try to get to. So thank, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Water Prairie Chronicles featuring the amazing Kristen Secor. We hope her journey with muscular dystrophy and traveling with a disability has been both inspiring and insightful for you. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed creating it. Before we go, we wanted to remind you that if you love our podcast and want to support us, you can make a donation at buymeacoffee.com slash waterprairie. Your contribution will help us keep the podcast going and continue bringing you valuable content. So if you have a few extra dollars to spare and want to show your appreciation for our podcast, head over to buymeacoffee.com slash waterprairie and make a donation today. Thanks for your support. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more listeners and bring more amazing guests like Kristen to our show. We appreciate your support and hope you tune in for our next episode.